Well, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and today we're going to be continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark, the big reveal. And we're going to be covering today the story of uh, who is the greatest. So whenever model that we look at in terms of human need, um, I have found that all of them have something that's very the same, a need for significance. We need to know we matter. Do you feel it? I do. I was uh, aware of that as a classroom teacher especially. Kids all felt like they, they wanted to matter in the classroom, and I tried to make that happen as much as I could for my part. Some kids tried to be significant through achievement, like good grades or athletic prowess or whatever. Some kids worked to be significant through the relationships with kids, other kids, popularity. And some kids got their significance, not in those positive ways, but in a negative way, by being like a troublemaker or class clown. Now, because getting in trouble gets attention from your teacher. And uh, because at least on a subconscious level, they thought that their even negative attention is better than no attention at all. And I can testify to that, I can tell you. (laughs) That need is so strong, that need for significance, that we do whatever it takes to meet it. The good, the bad, the ugly, all up for grabs, because something has to keep us feeling like we matter. And even when we finally reach a goal where we've gained some kind of significance, it doesn't last. Feeling significant can be very fleeting. You might remember a composer named Irving Berlin. Um, he wrote uh, White Christmas. He wrote uh, God Bless America. Those are probably his two biggies. But he wrote over 1,500 songs. So he was quite the composer. Um, George Gershwin said that he was the greatest composer American had ever produced. Yet, after Berlin's death, this is what his daughter wrote. The trouble was, no matter how much he achieved, somehow, as soon as he achieved it, he immediately fell into discouragement and, rep- and despair. He would say, I'll never be able to do that again. I'll never write another song like that one. His fear of the future robbed him the enjoyment of the moment, which is really very sad, isn't it? Well, there's two men I want to tell you about today who had that urge to become important, to feel like they mattered. Um, and that need drove them to become greater than their peers. Their names are James and John. You've probably heard of them. They're part of the group of 12 people that Jesus called to be disciples. Um, And uh, every group has its unique personalities, and Jesus' 12, there was no exception to that. These two guys, though, had a lot of chutzpah, a lot of nerve, because they were, probably because they were from a well-to-do family. Their father owned a fishing business, and they had servants that they employed, so they were uh, probably very comfortable. And that means probably they got a decent education um, and were used to a comfortable life. They did work the family business once they got older. Jesus called them right out of their fishing boats to follow him. In fact, their mother became a disciple, Salome is her name, and uh, supported him financially, Jesus financially, through three years of ministry. Another interesting thing about these two is that the possibility the brothers were actually related to Jesus. When you compare, there's three lists of women that are given that were there at the crucifixion. 
And they're all very, they're very similar to each other, so you get the feeling they're talking about the same people. In Matthew, we see Mary Magdalene. In Mark and John, we also see Mary Magdalene. And the second woman, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, said in Mark, Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph, and then finally Mary the wife of Clopas. And finally, the last person is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John's mother, right? Her name was Salome, but look at this last one. His mother and his mother's sister. So it could be, if the all three gospel writers are talking about the same people, it could be that Salome, John and James' mother, was actually Mary's sister, which would have made John and James Jesus' cousin. It's, you know, it's, it's not set in stone, um, nothing conclusive, but it's highly suggestive. And I think it would certainly explain their bold behavior as disciples as being, you know, feeling like they're kind of on the inside because they're part of Jesus' family, blood family. And they were audacious, uh, to say the least. Jesus made them part of his inner circle of three, and uh, James and John plus Peter made up that circle. Um, They were closest to Jesus, and he singled them out a few times, just them, to be specific things. One was when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. It was only those three that accompanied Jesus into the room. Another was the transfiguration, where Jesus was revealed in his glory. And then the third was the time when Jesus was about to be arrested. He was in agony in spirit when he knew what he was facing over the next couple of days. And so he asked three of the disciples to come with him to pray and, um, and, and just give him that comfort. But they also were feeling kind of important. They did a few interesting things. At one point, when a Samaritan town refused to accept Jesus for a visit, they asked him, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down in, from heaven and consume them? Now, I'm pretty sure they were thinking like Elijah or something. Um, Jesus didn't go for that, obviously. They also indignantly reported to Jesus one time, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Can you hear the tone in those two things? Um, and he was not following us is kind of a key word there, isn't it? In fact, Jesus nicknamed these two guys the Sons of Thunder. So what did they do to get that nickname? I'm sure they kept life very interesting for Jesus. But perhaps the boldest, most audacious thing that they did was to make this request. Teacher, get ready for this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What? Can you imagine now, it, it uh, kind of took me back to a famous photo of John F. Kennedy. He was at his desk with his little son, John John, and uh, the photographer was in his office that day and caught some really wonderful photos um, with his son playing at his feet. But to John John, President Kennedy was just daddy. But imagine if when he got a little older and he started to realize that his father was actually the, the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, What if he got it in his head to tell his father, Daddy, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. In one regard, it would show he understood in part the power that his father had. But on the other hand, it would demonstrate a complete misunderstanding of how that power was to be used. And I think that's what we see right here. James and John, they wanted significance in the kingdom. They thought that power and authority would do that for them. 
but they didn't get how power was used in God's kingdom. It's supposed to be used in God's kingdom. So we're going to read this account right now and see how Jesus responded to the Sons of Thunder's request. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's ask God to help us with this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you that every time we open it, you give us something new. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would do that for us, to take this familiar passage and make it come alive in our hearts. Help us to glean something from it that will transform us uh, into more of the likeness of Christ. So we ask your help in all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to go back to the beginning of that account because Mark gives us a detail that should create kind of a picture in our mind. They're walking south um, toward Jerusalem and have been for a while. But this is the first time that Jesus actually mentions the word Jerusalem. Um, And the journey started quite a long time ago at the beginning of this chapter. He also tells us that Jesus was walking on ahead of them. So almost a little bit of idea of Jesus being determined and purposeful and the disciples kind of dragging their feet. But it's certainly his determination that he had a mission to complete. Jesus, Jerusalem, of course, was where Jesus was going to fulfill his mission, his suffering, his death, and resurrection. So Jesus, at one point, pulls the disciples aside from the larger group of followers, which was quite a number at this point, to tell them this very thing. So he tells them about his suffering. And you know what? He's done it before. That's why it says, and again, Jesus pulled them aside, because this is a repeat of stuff he's already said. So I want to take a look at the three times Um, that he gave this prediction. The first was in Mark chapter 8, and he said that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. That was the first time. The second time was in chapter 9. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. 
So now the th- this is the third time, the final time, that Jesus is going to foretell his future. And he says, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So a little bit each time, the last one, this one that we just read, gives the most information of all. The other two don't even mention the Gentiles. But that was kind of an important part of things because being handed over to the Gentiles was um, a real sign of being um, shunned and rejected by the community because if 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 Jesus was the community's, Israel's Messiah, the last thing they would do was hand him over to the Gentiles. But something else I want you to know that as I looked at all of these three, and you know how I love to compare things, and as I looked at these three, I found something very interesting. The disciples' reaction each time that Jesus gives this thing is actually very consistent. So let's take a look at the, the reactions. The first one, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Not you, Lord, right? And he, he gets all hot under the collar. And this is what Jesus tells him on that. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's a pretty strong statement. I wouldn't want the Lord to say that to me. So there's that reaction. Now look over at Mark 9. Mark tells us they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. But then in the following scene, they're on the road traveling to another town. They start arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And now here... In Mark 10, he gives them the whole thing, and the next thing that happens is two of the disciples come over and say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Do you see the similarity there? It's like they've got their fingers stuck in their ears, and they're humming. As soon as he says the word suffering, mm-mm, and they're not hearing a thing. kind of reminds me of when my mom was really sick. They had my sister go to their doctor appointments with them, because, my mom and dad, because they, were, they knew that as soon as they heard something really disturbing, like the word leukemia, they didn't hear anything after that. That was the thing that stopped them dead in their tracks. And I think maybe this is the same thing. Um, Jesus told the disciples they were headed for Jerusalem. That's all they heard. Jerusalem. Why? Because they knew that the prophets had said that Jesus, or the Messiah, was going to come as a ruler of Israel. He was going to rescue them out of their oppression and bring them to independence and have this glorious kingdom. That's what they were waiting for. And so when Jesus says, okay, we're going to Jerusalem, that's what they heard. That's what they heard. Nothing but visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. And James and John's request shows that preoccupation, doesn't it? They want in on the glory. They want to be seated on Jesus' right and on the left. And both those spots, of course, were places of honor. And they believed that his glory was imminent, and they wanted in. So the other disciples' reaction actually confirms this, too, because it was obvious to them that it says they were indignant. It was obvious to them that James and John were stepping on their backs to get to the top. But Jesus says that, sees that they have an incorrect understanding of his kingdom still, even after all he's taught them. So this is what he says to them. You do not know what you are asking. In other words, if you want my glory, 
then you have to share my suffering. It's a package deal. Now, would you be able to share that, he asked them. Oh, yes, they assure him. We're ready. Then Jesus says this, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which, with which I am baptized? Now, there's two metaphors here. The first is the cup. And the cup was a metaphor often used in the Old Testament, and it can symbolize joy and prosperity, like in Psalm 16. But more frequently, the cup is associated with God's judgment and wrath, as we see in Psalm 11. Baptism in the Old Testament, as well as in popular Greek usage at the time, was used to speak of being overwhelmed by disaster or danger. And we see that in Psalm 42 and Isaiah 43, and there's lots of verses. Those are the two I picked. The disciples didn't have a clue to what they were agreeing to. And then he tells them this, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, that statement right there is commonly interpreted to mean that Jesus is foretelling the disciples that they're going to die a martyr's death. Have you heard that before? And it also kind of attaches suffering to um, following Jesus Christ. But I think, as I examine this thing, if we look at the context of what Jesus is saying that in, I think we're going to see it means a little something different. First of all, Jesus goes on to explain the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. He says, you know that those, are those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not that way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Well, another comparison there. Jesus is comparing the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at that and how he puts them side by side. The kingdom of this world, their great men are recognized as rulers, and their rulers lord it over them. We're looking at power here. We're looking at importance here. We're looking at control. Now take a look at what the kingdom of God great is. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. You know, as and you can see, that whole attitude about rulers being, you know, this, this divine thing that they're supposed to be worshiping and, and, and um, obeying every command in the money that was minted at the time. In the denarius, which we see in a lot of stories, uh, it portrayed the emperor Tiberius, and he was a, as a semi-divine god, son of Augustus and the goddess Livia. And there were copper coins that were minted by Herod Philippi. And those have Augustus's head, Caesar Augustus's head, and this is the inscription, he who deserves adoration. Both coins exalted their leaders to the status of a god. That's what the world was thinking at the time. And that's what Jesus is talking against. It's the world idea of greatness. But in the kingdom of God, our values are opposite from glory and power. Those who, great, who are great are those who serve, and the best of the great are the slaves of all. Now, Jesus abided by those things, didn't he? He considered himself <clears throat> something that he could leave his glory um, in the Philippians, it says this, although he existed in the form of God, 
he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's the epitome of servanthood. Laying down his privilege and authority, going to earth as a servant, living in complete um, submission and obedience to God the Father, with whom he was an equal in heaven, that's servanthood. That's the kingdom of God. The prophets foretold that Jesus would take, uh, the role Jesus would take long ago. In the latter part of Isaiah, God speaks to someone called my servant. And Jesus identifies himself as that servant when he visits the uh, a synagogue in Nazareth and identifies with um, that passage. Jesus would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The suffering Jesus would soon face was not just suffering on a cross. It was the suffering of bearing the weight of the world's sin with him as he went. He would die in our place. A substitute offering, it was the ultimate servanthood. And that was ordained by God before the beginning of time. Jesus told them, to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it's those for those who had, it has been prepared. God the Father planned to give his salvation in the beginning of the world, and he chose suffering as the way to accomplish that task. And the Son made himself subservient to that course of action. He kept perfect obedience unto death for the sins of others. But then, when the deed was done, Philippians tells us this, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The suffering, the complete obedience would come first, and then, and only then, would the glory follow. Now let's go back to that statement that we looked at earlier. The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. Now, like I said, I've heard people say that this meant he was telling the disciples that they were going to be dying martyrs' death. And that it's part of our salvation, suffering. But I think we need to interpret this in light of the context that we just looked at. Exactly what the suffering was that Jesus was facing. Because the disciples could not in any way, shape, or form share in that suffering of Christ, could they? They were not, in their whole lifetime, going to be dying for the sins of the world. They were not going to endure the wrath of God, even for their own sin. Now, I know in English, this is, a, uh, this is translated in their sharing of sufferings as a future thing, but I was amazed, really amazed, to find out that the verb here is not future tense. It's present, active indicative. It could be translated into English as a future tense, but in light of the context, what Jesus would suffer, I don't think he's talking about the future. I think he's talking about the state of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom is made up in, the present reality and future reality, because it's not going to change. 
He says, this is the way the kingdom is. Suffering and glory are linked. And the way of the world, getting power and authority, it's not this way among you. So the statement, rather than some admonition to behave in a certain way, or is a description of the way things are in the kingdom. It's not a requirement of salvation or in our life as a kingdom citizen. Not to say we won't suffer, but I don't think that's what he's talking about right here. So in summary, after a prediction of his suffering, Jesus' disciples request a petition of glory in the coming kingdom, and Jesus tells them they're out of line in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, it's not those who rule, but the ones who serve that will be considered the greatest, and the most great will be the ones who serve like slaves. So what? How does that passage affect us in the here and now? As I said at the beginning of this message, we were born with a need for significance. And the way of the world is to pursue opportunities to become influential. It tells us to work for power or importance, fame, glory, success. But that's the way of the kingdom of this world. It's not God's way. His kingdom is opposite to those standards. In our passage today, Jesus gave his prescription for being significant, successful, the greatest, the top dog in God's kingdom. And what was it? We have to be servants. We must be slaves of all. Now, putting ourselves in a servant role, not always easy. It takes a decision to give the needs of others a bigger priority than our own. I want to show you some of the things I have seen in my lifetime that really spoke to me of this idea. Um, I was in a lot of plays, and one time the star of the play was out after the rehearsal sweeping the floor. That was servanthood. When I went to seminary, uh, what, we had quite a faculty, brilliant, brilliant men. Um, just, you could just sit and listen to them for hours. They knew so much and loved God so much. But you know what? I, the first time I saw all of them together was when we were about to have a cookout at, at an orientation, and all the professors were out there, shirt sleeves rolled up, and they were moving picnic tables over into the area. They didn't call the servants in to do it. They did it. And to me, that just spoke volumes. When I was writing this list and trying to figure out, <laughs> you know, what, what are good examples of being a servant and putting needs above, others, needs above others, my phone rang. And it was my mother-in-law. She's 92. She needs a lot of attention at this point in her life. And when I heard her voice, I thought, oh, working on my sermon. This is so inconvenient because she needed me to go over there. And so, and then as I'm, as I'm thinking about it, I thought, okay, so yeah, that would be another example of being a servant right here in front of you, Julie. So sitting patiently and listening to an old woman tell you the same story that she's already told you 20 times. You could recite it back to her easily, sitting and listening patiently because you're putting her needs above ours, your own. How about to see a church leader viewing themselves not as top dog, but as one of us? To work toward making people feel like they're significant. They matter, not just because they're benefiting your cause, but because they matter to God. And last thing is someone that uses their spiritual gift to build others up. They're not doing it to get glory or recognition. They're doing it because they want to use what God gave them to build up the church. All of those things are great examples. There's just a few of them. And of course, the best example of all is Jesus Christ, who so perfectly lived as a servant. 
He left his glory, his privilege behind. He came not to be served, but to serve. And in following his steps, we give instead of take. We choose the interests of others over ourselves. And we love people where we are as we find them. You know, in closing, um, I want to tell you a little bit about Albert Einstein. He was the greatest scientist of his time. And for most of his life, he kept two portraits on the wall of his home for inspiration. Great scientists, Newton and Maxwell. But toward the end of his life, he took those pictures down and he put up two more. They were Albert Schweitzer and Gandhi. Why? Well, let me tell you a little bit about those two men. Schweitzer was a brilliant German theologian and philosopher. And while he was in a very prestigious position at his university, he felt the call of God to go and serve as a doctor on the African continent. So he left his position, highly esteemed professor, and he spent the next seven years in medical school. And then finally went to Africa and set up a hospital in some remote region. And for the next four decades, he treated patients, many walking hundreds of miles to receive his help. His selfless service made a difference to thousands of people. How about Mahatma Gandhi? Steve and I just watched a movie that included him this weekend. He was a nonviolent activist. He secured political independence for his country, India, and his work inspired movements for civil rights and freedom all over the world. So why did Albert Einstein choose those two men to hang on his wall? Well, he explained it. He said it was time to replace the image of success with the image of service. We need to stop going for success or importance as the world defines it and replace it with Jesus' idea of significance. And ironically, when we do, we finally find lasting fulfillment. We find peace that will not fade in knowing that we are valuing the very things that God values. We're going to get pleasure in God using our work for the benefits of others and bring them along the path by maybe encouragement or example. And in following Jesus' example servant of, of servanthood, we become more like our Savior who put himself aside and met our desperate need through his sacrifice. We become a viable picture of the generous and abundant kindness of Jesus Christ. And you can't get much more significant than that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for what you did in sending Jesus Christ. We thank you that he left the glory behind and endured a life on earth where he was servant to all and slave in giving his life for us. We want to be like Jesus, God. We want to live lives of servanthood because that's what he told us. We want to put others before ourselves. We don't want to look for significance in it. We don't want to uh, look for power or recognition. We just want to be your slaves. I'd ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit living in us would show us, make plain opportunities to do just that. And that we would be able to be faithful, give us strength, Lord, to do the right thing 
because we know it's what you value. So I pray for everyone here tonight, or this morning, <clears throat> and just ask you, God, that you would impress this on our hearts and transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.